We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, coming to the conclusion of this chapter, beginning in verse 18. The last paragraph there in chapter 3, hear now the word of God. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. So we come to verse 18. Uh, We hear Paul bringing back some themes that should sound familiar to us, themes that have already played a major part of the letter so far, and that is the themes of wisdom and folly. Verse 19, as you look there, the wisdom of this world is folly with God is nearly verbatim to two other verses uh, earlier on in this epistle, in chapter 1. In this context, though, Paul has just explained the different, distinct, and yet equally important roles or functions uh, that he and Apollos have played in the church at Corinth. So you recall he used a couple different metaphors. I planted Apollos, or uh, yeah, I planted Apollos watered, or I laid a foundation, Apollos built upon it. He's saying both things are necessary, and God used both of our our efforts and our ministries for the good of his church. And now he's bringing this into the theme of wisdom and folly to say this to the Corinthian people. Because remember, they were fighting between Paul and Apollos, and then there's also the Peter party, Cephas, and there are those who say, well, I follow Christ. They were, they were having this party spirit. They were getting on teams here. And he was trying to say, look, we're all on the same team. And now he brings that into the the discussion of wisdom and folly to say that if you think that the church succeeds based on the talents or the gifts or the gifting or the, the, um, the charisma of a particular minister, of a particular person, if you think that's how the church works, then you are operating according to worldly wisdom, which in the eyes of God is foolishness. If you think the church stands or falls depending on which minister she has, then you're thinking like the world. And let's be honest, the world is really smart and um, savvy. Think of politicians, right? We might sometimes put down uh, certain political figures as being less than intelligent, um, especially if we don't agree with their politics. But if we're just being honest, you'd have to recognize that you do not get in nor do you succeed in the world of politics without being incredibly smart. Uh, You have to know which people to befriend. You have to uh, know when to speak up and when to hold your tongue. You know 
what time, you need to know what timing to, to roll out certain policies so that they'll have the best um, uh, effect. You need to make plans so that you get your voter base on board. And so politicians must be clever. They must be shrewd. They must be savvy. And although that might be what it takes to work on Capitol Hill, that's not what it takes to work in the church. In fact, that's antithetical to how the church operates. Um, but we forget that sometimes. We at times can campaign for votes in congregational meetings. Uh, we talk to people after services to see if we can get on the same page about something, maybe get strength in numbers. Okay, now there's five of us that disagree with us, and let's take it to, to Brian and complain about it. Make sure you take it to Brian, not me. Okay. Right, we do this sort of, this sort of thing too. Some churches make their officer elections and nominations not unlike political uh, nominations and elections, right? They think, well, who can we get to serve on the board so that we know votes will start to go our way? That's really sad, but that's not uncommon. Uh, my friends in the PCA I was with all week uh, tell me that's entirely how their general assembly works. It's all about uh, it's all a political game, right? There are uh, many ministers who spend weeks leading up to GA to, to make sure that they have the votes needed to get certain people on certain committees uh, and so that things go their way. Um, in some ways, I wish the OPC's GA was that well thought out beforehand. Um, otherwise, we might not be there a whole week. The PCA GA takes place over three days, by the way. So um, ours is eight days. I'm getting far afield. I'm just bitter right now. Um, another place we see this cleverness show up in the church is what was at one time known as the seeker-sensitive movement. We see that worldly wisdom play at play in the seeker-sensitive movement. Church leaders decided that if they wanted to grow the church, if they wanted to bring outsiders in, they needed to bait them with things that really attracted them or that already attracted them. So the Word of God wasn't going to do it, but maybe, you know, uh, really good music would, or maybe uh, flashy sets and a video presentation, or maybe a hipster coffee bar in the lobby. But here's the thing you, you, we need to just honestly keep in mind about the seeker-sensitive movement. Or, or those methods. They work. They work in that people do come. Churches grow from them. That's what I mean when I say they work. And why do they work? Because the people who are thinking about these things aren't stupid. There is a, there's a, a cleverness here. There's a, there's a wisdom here. But Paul wants to say it's a worldly wisdom. It's a worldly wisdom. And what we need to get into our heads and our hearts is that the church doesn't excel or succeed or function at all off of worldly wisdom, but off of godly foolishness, which Paul called earlier preaching Christ crucified. That's how the church functions. That's how the church is built, right? Paul said a few verses ago that he laid a foundation, and there's no other foundation than that of Christ. So this is the foundation of the church. It's how we build upon that foundation. It's how the church grows. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's the gospel and preaching nothing else but the gospel. That's God's foolishness. The Corinthians thought they were wise enough to judge the effectiveness of their ministers, but this wisdom actually reveals their self-deception and their occupation with things of this present age which is passing away. And it has caused divisions in the church instead of building the church up. And so as Paul winds down this section on division, uh, which really will officially come to an end in chapter 4, but we're getting near the, the close of it. It's kind of been taking up the whole first four chapters, of calling out the divisions in Corinth. 
uh, as he finishes up here in chapter 3, he's going to give two warnings against worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that leads to division, two warnings against it, and then one incentive towards a humble and happy unity in the church. And we see how the text splits itself nicely into these two sections because there are two commands. Look with me at verse 18. There's the first exhortation, let no one deceive himself. And then verse 21, let no one boast in men. These are the two uh, main points that Paul's making. And so in verse 18 through 20, we have two warnings against self-deception. Let no one deceive himself. He gives two warnings why you should not be deceived. And then verse 21, let no one boast. He gives one great grand incentive for why you don't want to boast in men, but rather boast in God. So that's what we're going to see. First, the two warnings, and we'll uh, work through these two pretty quickly, and then we'll want to spend most of our time on the one incentive. The two warnings both come from the Old Testament. You notice there are two quotations that are made in this uh, passage. The first is from Job, and the second is from the Psalms. Uh, The first from Job is something that Eliphaz says to him. Uh, Job's poor excuse for a friend, Eliphaz, is asserting that the reason that Job is suffering is because Job is proud and arrogant. And so he tells Job, I'm quoting now from Job chapter 5, and I'm going to quote a few verses, verses 8 and 11, and then verse 13 is the one that Paul quotes. Eliphaz says, as for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, for he sets high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety, but he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Now, Eliphaz is wrong in terms of applying that to Job's situation, but he's nevertheless stating a very accurate theological truth about God, and that's what Paul is quoting this for. And so here is the first warning. Here's why you should not be deceived into thinking you are wise according to the world as though that is anything good in the eyes of God. Here's the first warning. Abandon worldly wisdom because it will be the end of you. Abandon worldly wisdom because it will be the end of you. The Lord catches the wise in their own craftiness. It's not just that, the, the, that God thwarts the plan of the wicked, but he often uses the plans of the wicked as a means of thwarting them. Uh, their, their wickedness and their arrogance are the very means by which they're thwarted. I, I was thinking that the demise of Adolf Hitler uh, is an example of this. It was Hitler's hubris, his insatiable uh, thirst for power that led him to make what historians universally agree was about the worst tactical decision imaginable when he invaded the Soviet Union. Now, why didn't any of his advisors tell him not to do this, that, tell him that this was a, a ridiculous idea? After all, Germany had far too few soldiers for um, the, the, the amount of land that they were talking about invading. Uh, they, his, his soldier base is depleted because they're fighting wars on other fronts. So too few soldiers to spare to start an eastern offensive. Uh, the territory is too vast, and they were not as prepared as the Soviets to deal with the harsh conditions of winter. Now, why didn't any of his advisors argue with him? Well, the reason was because um, at this point, they knew that if you crossed the Fuhrer, it was the last thing you would do. He did not, uh, he only had yes men, right? And so it's Hitler's hubris and his cruelty that ended up causing him to make a dangerous decision that lost him the war and soon cost him his own life. The Lord catches the wise in their craftiness. 
A warning against self-deception of, of being wise. It will be the end of you. The second warning comes from Psalm 94, verses 10 and 11. He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. And then the way Paul brings that in is the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. You see, it's not just that God is aware of the fact that, um, that man and his worldly wisdom are conjuring up thoughts. That's not what it means when it says uh, that the Lord knows the thoughts. When God knows something, it's often the Bible's way of saying he's ordained something. He has he elected something. Um, he chooses something. And so what we're reading here is that God ordains or chooses uh, the thoughts, or that the thoughts and plans of the worldly wise will come to nothing. So it's not just that he's aware of them, it's that he's aware of where they're headed because of his divine decree. So here's the second warning to the Corinthians. Abandon your worldly wisdom because it's a waste of time. In terms of severity, I probably would have put that one first, right? Abandon worldly wisdom because it's a waste of time, number one. Number two, abandon it because it will be the end of you. But taken together, um, a serious warning uh, of trying to attempt or, or, or of attempting to try to build the church based off of what seems right to us, building the church off the Paul platform or the Apollos platform or what else might it be? The homeschool platform or the Republican platform or the social activist platform. That will all come to nothing. It's a waste of time. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He has ordained that they are futile, that they are nothing. So there's these two warnings. But in addition to those, we have one positive. Two warnings and, and what I'm calling an, an incentive. And by incentive here, I don't mean, you know, a... A carrot on a stick, something that God's holding out and saying, look, here's, here's something I'll give you if you abandon your ways and, 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 and sort of enticing them. I mean an incentive in that God wants them to abandon the, the, the ways they're behaving in Corinth because of something they already have. And so it's an incentive in that way. He, he just wants to, to awake them up to a reality that's already theirs. And if they can just awaken to this reality, it will be enough for them. It will be all they need to turn from their division and their sinfulness. So we have the two warnings. Now, the one incentive for abandoning worldly wisdom uh, and to abandon this posturing, the party politics, the cult of personality, it's a single incentive, but it's a big one, and the way I've labeled it in my notes, if you want to follow along, we had the first part of the sermon is two warnings, and the second is not one incentive. The second is actually one massive, great, glorious, inspiring, comforting, assuring, exhilarating, better than any other incentive. I'll say it again. What we have here is one massive, great, glorious, inspiring, assuring, comforting, exhilarating, better than any other Incentive and it's incentive not to boast in man. Here it is. Quit fighting about some ministers that you have or what some members are like or what gifts certain people have. Quit fighting because all things are yours already. 
all things are yours. There's that one great, glorious, massive incentive for them to make it a complete change, to turn from the way they've been behaving, boasting in people like Paul and Apollos, and boasting in themselves because they follow Paul or Apollos. He says, no, 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 you can drop all that because all things are yours. This is not the only time the Bible makes such a staggering statement. Ephesians 1, we're told that in Christ Jesus we have every spiritual blessing. Romans 8, verse 32, uh, we are told that uh, because God has given us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now we're told all things are yours. If you're a Christian, you lack for nothing. Everything, all things are yours. I wonder if you see how this would incentivize the Corinthians to be done with division and get to work on unity. I think Paul is suggesting that part of the reason they're divided is because they're, they're jealous, they're envious of one another, right? Team Paul doesn't like the attention that Team Apollos is getting. Or maybe Team Apollos wants to make sure they're able to influence certain decisions in the church. Uh, they don't want to give that over to anyone else. And Paul is saying that when they fight about which preacher is best, or which pastor has a better vision, which one is their guy, they're fighting over something that belongs to all of them equally. Do you see that there in verse 22? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So he's just said all things are yours and he begins with people. He begins with these pastors, Paul, Apollos or Cephas. It's yours. The ministry of the apostles, just as much as the ministry of pastors and preachers today who continue on in the apostolic tradition, passing on the faith once delivered to all the saints, they are gifts to the whole church. Not just one congregation, but the whole church. We all derive a benefit from it. In Corinth, they need to remember that they all had a rightful claim on the ministries of Paul, Paulus, and Peter. These men were serving them. You're fighting over these guys, but they have all taken a position of, of service to you. They're all servants to you. All men are yours, Paul says, in the sense that you are delivered now from the undue dependence upon them and in the sense that they are serving your highest good. These pastors are yours. Every faithful pastor, every faithful servant of God, every faithful minister is yours, friends. It's important to remember that today. It's something I think our Presbyterian form of government helps to teach us in that our church, Community Pres, is not a lonely island cut off from any other resource besides that what you get from me. We belong to a presbytery. Don't fall asleep. This will be brief. I want to talk about polity for just a minute. We belong to a presbytery. Presbytery is the regional church, right, in Michigan, Ontario, 27 churches. And what do the pastors of those churches do? We all serve on committees. And what are those committees for? For every member of a church within that presbytery, right? So, so, yes, I'm your pastor, but you have all benefited from, whether you realize it or not, the work of Pastor Hennis in Hillsdale, Pastor Veenstra up in Harvest, uh, Pastor DeBoer in Ada, uh, Pastor Ferguson in Ontario, Pastor Wilson in Detroit. You might not realize it, and this is one of the reasons I, I am a big fan of, of pulpit exchanges. I want you to see the men that belong to you, the men that serve you, right? This is something that I think is an illustration of Paul's point that all apostles belong to the Corinthians. We're done with talking about polity. Moving on. 
it gets bigger and it gets better than the apostles, right? What else belongs to the Christian? Let's conclude by looking at the five things that Paul mentions by way of representative example. The world, life, death, the present, and the future. All things are yours. So what does Paul mean by the world? Well, as we mentioned already, um, or maybe we didn't mention already. I'm going to mention it now. Maybe we didn't mention it earlier. But Christians are heirs of the new heavens and the new earth. That the world is ours in that sense. That we will, we will uh, rule over this world one day soon. The world is ours. And that should stop us short of petty arguments like the kind that were happening in Corinth. The Corinthians are arguing over the color of the mailbox uh, when God's given them a mansion. No, the world's yours. The world's yours. Don't you realize all that you have? Stop your bickering. Besides the world, we also possess life and death. First, life. Paul is saying that anything that happens to us in life is for our good. There is nothing in life that is working against us, not ultimately, not when we have a God who promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him. This is a a, a statement that Paul can make only if he has a big view of God, and it's a statement you'll only believe if if you have a big view of God as well, if you have this Christian worldview that's centered on the sovereignty of God in all things. All things in life serve us, whether trials or triumphs, Suffering, sadness, comforts, and joys, it is all ours. It's all our servant working according to God's sign for our good. And death is our servant, too. Death has a specific job now. Death is the usher that takes us from our place in this world and brings us to our Father's house where we will dwell forever and ever. Death now serves us. Death's a door. It's our entrance into glory. This is, do you realize the privilege you have to be able to say, death does not own me. Death serves me. That's something only a Christian can say. If you are an unbeliever tonight, then you need to recognize that death owns you. You're a child of wrath and you're destined for death. If you're an unbeliever, then this life is actually just an extended stay on death row. But when you're a Christian, that all changes, and now something even like death becomes your servant. Similar points are made with the final two examples, present or future. That is to say, whether it's this life or it's the next life, it's all for us. It's right here and now. And if it's right here now, it's something we enjoy by grace. If it's in the future, it's something we enjoy in glory. Whatever it is, notice how Paul emphasizes it by repeating himself at the end of verse 22. All things are yours. For all things are yours, verse, the end of verse 21. And then he says it again, verse 22. All are yours. Well, that is on the basis of one condition. All things are yours if you belong to Christ. All things are yours if you are Christ's. Here Paul shows how it is that these things can be ours, and it's because that we are God's. Uh, Picture it, maybe it's helpful to think of it sort of like Russian nesting dolls. The world, life, death, uh, things present, things future, 
that would be um, the, the smallest doll, which is nestled uh, inside the Christian, which is nestled inside Christ, which is nestled inside God. God who owns all, who has all. The reason we have all these things is because we belong to the one who really and truly owns it all. And the way we belong to him, the way we belong to God, who is the maker of all and the sustainer of all, the owner of all, the way we belong to him is because we belong to Christ, the mediator. There's no way to come to the Father except through him. So since we are Christ, then we can say we are God's because Christ is God's. Now, what does that mean? That could sound theologically kind of dangerous here. That could almost sound like Christological heresy. How could... God own Christ, Christ who, as we've just confessed in our um, shorter catechism, right? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in power and in glory, one, one in essence in being. What, what, what does this mean? Well, the way we make sense of it is that Christ is subservient to God or possessed by him or belongs to him in terms of his being the mediator, in terms of his mission to come down and to rescue us, to walk in our skin, and to live for us. Christ humbled himself in a role of service to the Father. And that role was the role of mediation, the role of being the bridge between us and God. Coming to Christ is the way you come to God. And if God's the one who has everything, then that means all things belong to you if you belong to him. So this is the most crucial thing that Paul is saying here, and we all need to hear it. If you are not owned by Christ, you don't own a thing. If you do not belong to Christ, nothing belongs to you. Without Christ, you have nothing. In Christ, all things are yours. Alexander McLaren was a Scottish Baptist minister in the 1800s, but he pastored in Manchester in England. He was said to have possessed a golden hammer by which he would strike any passage of scripture and it would all fall out in these ways that would be easily understood. He'd strike it with his hammer and there's three points everybody could understand or four points everybody could take away. Uh, And I found out recently his sermons are available online and I want to read you just several comments that he makes on this text that I think bring into focus the point Paul is making. Please listen to this. This is what McLaren says. What Jesus Christ is to a man settles what everything else is to him. Our relation to Jesus determines our relation to the universe. If we belong to him, everything belongs to us. If we are his servants, all things are our servants. And then he gives this brilliant example of a rich man who does not have God. He says, there are plenty of rich men in Manchester who say they possess so many thousands of pounds, right? Currency, pounds. Turn the sentence around and it would be a great deal truer. The thousands of pounds possess the rich man. In other words, the only way to ensure that we possess our possessions and not that our possessions possess us is to belong to Christ. We will be greedy, we'll be envious, we'll be haughty and selfish until we become servants of Christ and then find out that all things now serve us. Now there's humility, now there's happiness. Herein lies the unity of the church that Paul is after. Well, McLaren goes on. These things that he's spoken of, that Paul's spoken of, the world, life, death, these things belong most truly to the man who belongs to Christ. The world is Christ's 
And if we live near him and cultivate fellowship with him and see his face through all things and are led up nearer to him by everything around us, then we own the world. Without Christ, you have nothing. In Christ, you have all things. Boys and girls, I got an illustration for you that might help bring it home. And I say it's for you, but really, here's a hint, boys and girls. When I say that, it's because I don't think your parents can understand. So I'm, this is actually for them, so they better be paying attention too. Um, when I come to your house, you love to show me around, right? And you tell me, oh, this is my, this is my house, this is my, this is my bedroom, right? These are my toys, this is my yard, this is my dog, whatever it is. And, and you take ownership of it, and you're excited to share that with people, right? If you have a friend who comes to the house, you want to do the same thing. Let me show you these things that are mine. Well, Maybe uh, you can imagine you're driving home, maybe a friend's driving you home, a friend's parent's driving you home, and they're, they're wondering where your house is, and you point out the window and you say, that's my house, that's mine. Well, they wouldn't argue with you, and they would believe you when you say, that's my house, and that's my yard, and that's my dog, and that's my room. The house and everything in it belongs to you, but only because you first belong to your dad and to your mom. The house and everything in it is yours because you belong to the people who have their name on the mortgage and who pay the bills. And it's because you are theirs that the house is yours. And it's the same way in the Christian faith. When you are Christ's, everything that is his is yours. And what's his? All things. He's the maker and the owner of everything. If you want all things to belong to you, you need to belong to him. Come to Christ, forsake your sin, be his servant, and you'll have everything in this life, and most especially in the next. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word and would you write its eternal truths upon our hearts? Would you send your spirit to be the after-preacher, to overcome the deficiencies of this poor servant, that we could all walk away and benefited uh, having had you teach us and you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.